Mic on. Hello again. Now you're going to hear about Revelation, the Thousand Years of Peace, episode chapter 15. Mic off. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. The Book of Revelation reveals God's plans for the future. Revelation clearly gives us light on the road ahead. There are many people that are confused about the future. They wonder about this thousand-year period mentioned in Revelation, the 20th chapter. Is this a thousand years of peace on earth? Is this really a thousand years of peace at all? What about the millennial period? Does anybody exist on earth during the millennium? We're going to discover some answers in our presentation this day, but let's pray together first. Father in heaven, we need answers, not human answers, but divine answers. We need answers not based on human opinion, but answers based on the Word of God. So come and speak to us. But as we study this subject of the millennial period in the Bible, May it not only fill our heads with knowledge so we understand correctly biblical teachings, but it may it change our lives. In Christ's name, amen. My topic during this telecast is Revelations, Thousand Years of Peace. Margaret was a real party girl. It's the Roaring Twenties, and uh, parties seem to be everywhere in America. The finances are good. The stock market has not yet crashed as it would a few years later in 1928. And uh, Margaret goes from party to party. She's excited about life, but yet there is this aching void within her heart. She's a girl that loves to go to dances. She's a girl that whatever the party is, she is the life of the party and she's there. But then something happens. She begins losing her strength. Her energy seems to be gone and she develops a very strange disease. She lies on her bed in a catatonic state. She, she's conscious or semi-conscious, but says nothing. Uh, her, her eyes are open, and then she settles into this deep sleep. It's a sleeping sickness, not aware of anything around her by this time, just lying there on her bed. Heart is beating normally, lungs are functioning normally, but she cannot respond. Five years go by, she's lying there. Ten years go by, she's still lying there. Twenty years go by, thirty plus years go by, nearly forty years go by. And this woman, isolated in a hospital ward, by now, some kind of nursing home retirement center. She becomes case history in America. But then Dr. Oliver Sacks discovers something called La Dopa, which is 
a drug that he believes could wake her out of her sleeping sickness. He administers the drugs, and there is this great awakening. She wakes up. Certainly, her, her limbs are stiff. Certainly, she is an aged old woman now, but her mind is sharp. It's clear. But you know what happens? When she wakes up, she goes back to the roaring 20s. She had no idea of that last 35, 40 years of the passage of time. She simply is stuck where she was. It's called the Great Awakening. There is another Great Awakening coming when the saints of God wake up, when Jesus Christ comes. And in that Great Awakening, we'll have glorious immortal bodies, we'll have sharp minds, not a Great Awakening like Margaret experienced. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, not yet, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, notice according to Scripture, there are two resurrections. How many resurrections does this Bible passage describe? I told you, didn't I? There are what? How many are there? There are two. What are they called? The resurrection of what? Life and the resurrection of damnation. Which resurrection comes first? Which one comes first? The resurrection of, of life, then the resurrection of damnation. When do these resurrections take place? Well, it's very clear when the resurrection of life takes place. The Bible describes the second coming of Christ, the return of our Lord. It describes the graves opening. It describes the righteous coming forth out of their graves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, puts it this way. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the shout of victory, the shout of glory, the shout of triumph. And with the voice of the archangel, that voice pierces the two. And with the trump of God, that glorious trumpet of God that blasts the tombs, and the voice of God that calls the dead forth from their tombs. The dead in Christ shall rise when? Shall rise when? Rise first. That is the first resurrection. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. We'll be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So the Bible is very clear. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the righteous. The first resurrection is the resurrection of those that have been believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Just think of it. That little child that you've laid in the grave will come forth to new life. Just think of what it's going to be like to see that little five-year-old, six-year-old come running to you again. And you're putting your arms around them and being caught up in the sky to meet Jesus in the air together. Just think of what it, the joy. Wouldn't it be a tragedy to miss that rendezvous, to miss that reunion with your child, with your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your husband, or your wife? Wouldn't it be a tragedy to miss all eternity for the cheap 
pleasures of this world. Yes, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous is going to be an incredibly glorious event. You know, when Jesus comes back the second time, there is no second chance. There are only two groups, the saved, those that look up to see Christ coming and say, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. There will only be two groups, the saved or the lost. And you remember, for one group it is a new beginning. For the other group it's a tragic ending. For one group it's the beginning of a new day. For the other group it's the ending of a day and the beginning of a long night. For one group it's glory and heaven. For the other group it is condemnation and lostness and destruction. The Bible describes there are two groups and the decisions that we make in this life settle our destiny for all eternity. This one group says Revelation 6 verse 15 to 17, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every freeman hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath, that's the judgment of the Lamb. What a tragedy it is. Jesus wants to save all humanity. His death on the cross has made provision for all to be saved. Not one man, one woman, one child need be lost. But yet some run cry for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. God has given us the freedom of choice. God has given us the capacity to choose. He influences that choice. He sends His Holy Spirit to touch our hearts. He sends angels to beat back the forces of hell. But the choice to serve Him is ours. That's why the Bible says, choose you this day who you'll serve and let it be Christ the Lord. So God gives us the power of choice. He influences and impacts that choice, but the choice must be ours. If men and women are lost at last, it's because they turned from his love, rejected his grace, and walked away from the convictions of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing everything he can to save you, but the choice is yours. And at the end, there's no second chance. Why is it that there is no second chance? Because he's given us a thousand chances in this life. No, 10,000 chances in this life. No, many more than that. Jesus, every day we live, every breath we take is another opportunity. You see this group run and they cry for the rocks and the mountains and they say, for the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The answer to that question is those that have accepted Jesus. Those for whom Christ becomes their Lord and their Savior forever. But those who run from him are those that have rejected his love and turned his back, their backs on his mercy. What does it mean to accept Jesus as king? You see, if we do not accept Christ as the king of our hearts here, we're not going to worship him as the king of our hearts in the universe. If we do not accept him as the Lord of our life here and let him sit on the throne of our hearts to be the major governing factor in our lives, then we would want to throw him off the throne in the universe and sin would start up all over again. What does it mean to accept Jesus as king? It means to invite him to rule on the throne of your heart. It is not complicated. It is not difficult. 
It's simply saying, Jesus, you come. I, I don't want to be ruling on the throne of my heart. I don't want to be governing my life in my own way because I know that that's not the way of joy at all. I know that that's the way of disaster. Lord, your way is best, not my will, but thy will be done. You know the old song, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You're the potter and I'm the clay. Mold me and make me. And that's the prayer of every committed, converted Christian. God, make me what you want me to be. See, Jesus invites you to make him your Lord, your Savior, your King, the Savior, the one that died for you, the Lord, the one that lives in your life, and the King, the one that you're looking forward to come to take you home again. John chapter 14, verse 1 to 3, Jesus says, yes, certainly two classes when he comes, but he's coming for you because he does not want to be separated from you, because he wants as your lover to be with you forever. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. Who's the place prepared for? It's prepared for you, prepared for me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I'm coming, not primarily to destroy the earth. I'm coming, not primarily to burn up the wicked, but I am coming because I can't bear to be without you any longer. I'm coming because I want to be with you through all eternity. I'm coming to receive you to myself. He loves you that much. He died for you, and he's going to come back to get that which he has purchased. He came once as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. He came once to face the temptations of Satan head on. He came once to have victory over sin and the evil one. He hung on the cross to die, to provide eternal life for you and me. But he is coming back again in glory to resurrect the dead, to change the dead into immortality and to change the living into immortality and to catch them up in the sky to take them with him for all eternity in a moment. At the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Here are the events at Christ's second coming. What are they? First, believers will be resurrected from the dead to receive new glorious bodies. They'll receive immortality. The wicked living will be consumed with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 to 9, talks about them being destroyed with the brightness of his glorious return. The wicked dead will remain in their graves, and the believers will ascend to heaven with Christ. His coming is not a secret coming at all. Revelation 1, verse 7 says, every eye will see him. Psalm 50, verse 3 and to 5 says, Our God will come and not keep silence. 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've just read says he comes with the sound of a trumpet. So every eye sees him, every ear hears it. It's a glorious event. And these events, believers being resurrected, believers receiving immortality, wicked living consumed, wicked dead who remain in their graves, and the believers that ascend to heaven with Christ, they take place surrounding the second coming of Christ. But what happens after he comes? What is the state of the earth after Jesus Christ returns? What's the condition of the earth? 
Is there anybody who is left alive on earth? And what happens to Satan when Jesus Christ comes? When does God make the new heaven and the new earth? When do all those events occur? And what about this thousand-year period the Bible talks about? Do we have living people on earth? Are they alive during this thousand years? Those are really good questions, and the Bible answers those questions. Here in the book of Revelation, we have the description of the thousand-year period. Now, there are places where the condition of the earth is explained in the Bible and other places, but it's only in Revelation chapter 20 that we read about this thousand-year period. Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, this is an interesting passage. Here's where we get the word in the Bible, millennium. The word millennium, it's not used in the Bible, but this is where we get it from. It comes from two Latin words, milli, meaning a thousand, and anium, meaning a thousand years. So, the word millennium simply means a thousand years. Writers use it. You may have heard preachers talk about it. It's not used in the Bible, but it's that term to describe this thousand-year period that we have just read about here in the book of Revelation, chapter 20 and onward. Now, let's take a look at Revelation 20, verse 1, a little more carefully. It says that the devil is chained or bound in a bottomless pit. What is this bottomless pit? Is it some subterranean cavern in the center of the earth? What is this bottomless pit? Is it some dark hole down there someplace? Well, the word bottomless pit in the Greek language of Revelation chapter 20, and you remember the New Testament is written in the Greek language, is abusus, abusus. What does that word mean? It means abyss. You can see very similarity between it. So Satan is thrown into this abyss, this cavern of darkness. It also can apply to darkness, desolation, that whole concept or idea. In Genesis 1 verse 2, when the Bible the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into the Greek language, this word abyss was used. It says the earth was without form and void. It was an abyss. In other words, at creation, before God spoke life into existence, the desolate dark earth is termed the abusus or the abyss. So when Jesus comes the second time, every mountain, every island moved out of its place. When Jesus comes the second time, the earth, the buildings of the earth come tumbling down, darkness over the earth, it is like an abyss. It's like a place of desolation. It is this abusus that the Bible speaks about in Genesis 1 verse 2 when the earth is without form and void. That's exactly the condition of the earth after the coming of Christ in glory, after the resurrection of the righteous saints or the believers, and after they ascend to heaven with Christ. Jesus comes. The righteous are caught up to meet him in the sky. The earth is left in this dark, desolate state. It is a destroyed planet earth. Buildings toppled down. The earthquake has shaken the earth. The 
beauty of earth is gone. It's a desolate place. What are these chains that bind Satan? Are they iron chains that he's just bound with a ball and chain to earth? The scriptures explain very clearly the meaning of these chains. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. Now the word hell there in the original language is Tarturus. It means place of darkness. It, this word does not imply burning at all. It's a place of darkness. It says, and delivered them into what? Chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Keep that in mind. The devil's cast out of heaven, not cast into some hot spot in the center of the earth. It says he's reserved for judgment. But what does the Bible say? It talks about chains of darkness. So what are the chains that Satan is bound with? Chains that Satan are bound with are chains of darkness. The earth is desolate. Satan cannot leave it. He is on this earth without the ability to leave. He wanders to and fro over a desolate earth. And as he wanders to and fro over that desolate earth, shouting and re-echoing in his ears are these words, the wages of sin are death. The wages of sin are death. God is dealing with the controversy between good and evil in a way that sin will never rise up a second time. Why do you have a millennium? Why doesn't Christ just come and recreate the earth? Because God wants to ensure the security of the universe. God wants to ensure the safety of the universe forever and ever and ever. And so the whole universe can see and Satan can see the destruction that sin has brought. Withdraw the hand of God, you withdraw life. Withdraw the hand of God and you withdraw everything good and holy and righteous and pure and true and beautiful and you just have the ugly and death and Satan wanders around seeing the result of his work. Everything around him is death. He had said that if human beings followed him, if Adam and Eve followed him, they would have life, they would be as gods. But during the millennial period, the desolation of the earth proves that that is a blatant falsehood and a lie. Everything God does is to ensure the security of the universe through all eternity. God is love. He's worthy to be trusted. And during that millennial period, God reveals that his love brings life and joy and Satan's way brings death. What is wrought out on the cross. You remember when Christ dies on Calvary, he hangs there and we see the worst in human nature in what human beings did to Christ. We see him of the God of love bearing all the guilt and shame. But now, during the millennial period, we see the worst of what has happened to the human race. Without God, it is only death and that echoes in Satan's ears. The wonderful thing is this, no sin so dark that God's love cannot blot it out. You see, God desires that when he comes again, that you and I are caught up to meet him in the sky, that we live with this God of love forever, that the wages of sin which are death do not destroy our lives. Jesus longs to forgive you, my friend. 
He longs for you to be in heaven with him during this thousand-year period. Because you see, really, there are only one of two choices. There are only one of two places that we would be, either in heaven with Christ during the thousand years, or still in our graves, not resurrected when he comes the second time, or destroyed by the brightness of his coming. But you say, my life is just not in harmony with God's will. It's not, I, I know I'm not living how he wants me to live. You can make a decision right during this telecast to give your life to Christ. You can make a decision right now that settles your destiny. And you can say, Lord, I want to be with you forever in heaven. I want to live with you. I do not want to experience sin's wage of death and have my body strewn over the earth in this desolate darkness. Now, is there anyone alive on earth during the millennium? The Bible is very plain. It describes exactly this desolate earth, and it points out that there's not one person alive here. The only ones here are Satan and his evil angels. Here's what the Scripture says, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 to 27. Jeremiah says, I beheld the earth, and it was without form and void. Wait a minute. Is this at creation? Not at all. And the heavens, they had no light. Jeremiah goes on, I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled. When's every mountain and island going to be cast out of its place when Jesus comes? And all the hills move back and forth. When's that? When Jesus comes. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens fled. So here, nobody lives on earth during the millennium. During this time, there's only Satan and his evil angels. Here, Jeremiah goes on, I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a what? Wilderness. Used to be fruitful. This is not creation. This is after Christ comes the second time. All the cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord and his fierce anger. First, fierce anger against what? Fierce anger against sin. So here is a desolate earth, cities broken down. Here is a desolate earth with only Satan and his evil angels. Nobody is on earth during the millennium. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23 to 27 goes on. Thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be, what everybody? Whole land shall be what? Desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Why is God not going to make a full end yet? Because at the end of the thousand years, as we shall see, the holy city will descend, and remember what the Bible says in Matthew 5, verse 5, the meek shall inherit the earth. And so here, the Bible teaches that the earth will be made over again. Micah says that the first dominion, like in Eden, will be restored once again. But during the thousand years, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 33, notice what Scripture says. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of earth even to the other end of the earth. Isn't it a very sobering thought that when Christ comes again, you and I are either caught up to meet him in the sky or we're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. We, our graves either open and we hear John come forth, Mary come forth, Tom come forth, Betsy come forth, and that graves opens, and there's new life in the glorious immortal body, and we send to heaven with Christ. Either that, or we remain in our graves until the end of that thousand-year period, 
or if we are alive, we're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. And from one end of the earth to the other, the slain bodies are there. And the devil wanders around among all that death and desolation. And he hears echoing in his ears, the wages of sin are death. The Bible says in Jeremiah 25, verse 33, they shall not be lamented nor gathered. Why not? There's nobody to gather them, nobody to lament or sorrow for them or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. The wicked are destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Bodies strewn over the earth. What a gruesome, what a horrible scene. Sin is horrible. And the whole universe sees the results of, the effects of, the consequences of sin. Love brings life. Selfishness brings death. God is the way through Christ of love and grace and mercy and pardon. And the devil's way is the way of selfishness. And selfishness is separation from God who is the source of love. And that only brings death. Remember what the Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. If you die once only in that physical death, then you will die a second time eternally. If you die in this life, not only once in the physical death, but if you die to self in this life and let Christ live within you, you will live eternally. So if you die once in this life, you're going to die eternally at the end. Die once and live a selfish life. If you die to yourself in this life and then happen to die the physical death, what consequence is that? Because Jesus Christ is going to come again. I'd rather die to self than die eternally at the end, wouldn't you? I'd rather accept the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary for me than to die eternally. The Bible talks about those who are in the first resurrection. It says, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him a thousand years. You've got royal blood in your veins. We are priests and kings with God. We don't want to surrender our heritage or give up our destiny. We reign with Christ a thousand years. What are we doing with Christ? I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. We reign with Christ. We become witnesses for Christ. Notice it says judgment was given to them. The books were opened. Now follow me closely. During this life right now, since Revelation's prophecies are being fulfilled since 1844. We've studied about that in this series. We have been living in the judgment hour. What's that judgment hour for? It reveals before a waiting world and a watching universe the goodness, the graciousness, and the majesty of God. God shows before the whole universe the fact that he's loving and just and that anybody that's lost is lost not because of God's choice, but because of their unfitness for heavenly companionship and their loss because of their own choices and their own decisions. Before the whole universe, God reveals his love and that every human being could have and should have been saved if they would have responded to that love. During the millennial period, what does it mean the books are open? What does it mean that we sit on thrones in judgment? 
God answers every question in our minds. So there can be no question going into eternity of His grace and His love and His goodness. During the millennial period, this thousand years, God answers every question. Why doesn't He come the second time and just do away with sin forever, recreate the earth? Why the thousand years? Here's two great reasons. One, the whole universe sees the wages of sin as death as they look at a desolate earth. Two, we get a chance to look at the books of record. Have you ever wondered, why did that happen to me in life? Was God really fair in allowing that to happen? Why is it that I had this circumstance? Why did this son die? Why did I go through this horrible experience in my life? I tried to live for Christ, but I experienced this. In the millennial period, the books will be open, and Jesus will show you that He has led you in the way you would have chosen to be led if you could see the end from the beginning. He will show you during that period that He was working in your life in every aspect of that life. We will see then questions that we don't have answered now answered then. You know, what if you were in heaven and your son or daughter, your husband or wife or friend wasn't there? And you say, God, why? What if you had doubts going into eternity before the new heaven and the new earth are created? God Himself will explain that He could not have brought certain people to heaven because if He did, they would have then exhibited selfishness and greed and envy and lust in heaven. So what does Jesus do? He explains that all to us ahead of time. Then he wipes the memory away. And we are just filled with his love and filled with his grace. Every question about his justice, every question about his love will be fully answered. You know, we see the poverty in this earth. We see terrorism in this earth. We see bombs drop and children with legs blown off. We see kids in famine starving to death. We say, why God? Why God? We see terrorist attacks and terrorists enter into churches and kill people. Or they go into malls or theaters and kill people. We say, God, this makes no sense at all. Every question about his justice, every question about his love will be fully settled during that thousand years. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We will participate as believers with Christ in the final judgment. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? What does that mean? we'll actually participate in the final judgment of the evil angels who are lost because God will reveal to us the fact that they, if they would have been given another chance, they would have been so bent on evil, they would have destroyed the universe and brought this sin, suffering, and heartache up again. We're going to be participants in that, and that ensures the security, that ensures the safety of all the universe. When heaven's books are open, we then will fully understand. We'll understand every tear. We'll understand why the sword pierced our heart. We'll understand heartache and sorrow and disappointment. And then Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Then the memories will only be ones of joy and positiveness. So what are the events during the millennium? What are the events during this thousand-year period? First, the righteous are in heaven. We've been caught up to meet Christ in the sky, dead, righteous, resurrected, living righteous with immortal, glorious bodies along with the dead righteous. We are caught up to meet Christ in the sky. Death is but asleep, an instant, and the trumpet blasts. We see Christ coming. The wicked who are dead remain dead. The wicked who are living are destroyed with the brightness of his coming and their bodies strewed over the earth. Satan 
and his angels are bound on earth, they see the impact of what they have done. The earth at this point remains desolate. Now, what events happen at the end of the millennium? What takes place at the end of the thousand years? Often, truth is stranger than fiction. And here is the climax of the ages. This is more thrilling. This is more exciting. This is more dramatic by a million trillion times than any Hollywood movie. Every Star Wars controversy and trilogy fades into insignificance in comparison to the divine prophetic insight of what happens at the end. All of this great controversy between good and evil comes to a glorious climax. All of this comes to a screeching halt of conclusion. And there we see at the end of the millennium, the wicked dead here are resurrected. Now, how do you know that? Remember what we read at the beginning of our presentation? It says, marvel not at this. For what? All of those in the grave shall hear his voice, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Damnation. So two resurrections. When then are the rest of the dead, those not caught up in the first resurrection, when are they resurrected? Here the Bible's clear. Back to Revelation, Revelation 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead, who? Who, everybody? The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So at the second resurrection takes place at the end of the thousand years. Now, to be sure that we have it clear in our minds, let's go back to the chart. At the coming of Christ, we have the first resurrection, and that is called the resurrection of what? The resurrection of life. During the thousand years, Satan is bound on earth. The people of God, the saints of God, the believers are in heaven. At the end of the thousand years, you have the resurrection of damnation. That is, the unsaved are resurrected. Why would God bring them back to life at that moment? Why would you have this resurrection of damnation? Why doesn't God just let the wicked stay in their graves? Why doesn't he just let the wicked who have been destroyed by the brightness of his coming lie on earth? There's a specific reason in the plan of God for this. You know, some people are saying, only if we had a second chance. You know, then we'd turn to God. The second resurrection, the resurrection of damnation, reveals that those who are lost have made so many decisions against Christ that their brains are fixed. And even if God would give them another chance, even if that would take place, they would never make their decision for Christ. Now, the Bible looks out at this group in Revelation 20, verse 8. It says, the number is as the sand of the sea. What a tragedy. What heartache. What a disappointment to God. Tens of thousands and millions of people who've turned their back on his love, rejected the promptings of his spirit, turned away from Calvary. They are the number as the sand of the sea. And the Bible talks about what happens. The devil gathers them together. He places them in under his control. 
he tries to convince them we can take the city. Look at our numbers. Thousands and tens of thousands. Look at our numbers. We can take that city. We can overthrow that city. He sees in that army vast military generals that have never lost a battle. He sees in that army the brilliant minds of captains and lieutenants, military leaders, and he, say, he marshals the legions of the lost. They see that holy city. The Bible says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, now when the thousand years have expired, what's expired mean? S finished, completed, they're over. Satan will be released from his prison. How's he released from his prison? He's been chained by a chain of circumstances to earth. He's wandered around for a thousand years over these dead bodies. There has been nobody at all to tempt. And so now the chains are unfettered, they're unloosed. Now he sees the legions of the lost. Now he sees those wicked men and women who are bent against Christ and he looks at them. He's released from his prison. He goes out to do what? Deceive the nations. Did the devil deceive a third of the angels in heaven? Did the devil deceive Adam and Eve? Did the devil deceive men and women down through the centuries? The devil is a deceiver. That is who he is. John 8 verse 44 says the devil is a liar and he is the father of lies. So down through the ages, this deceiver, this liar, this one bent on the destruction of the world, here he looks at the nations. He deceives them once again. He says we can take the city. We can take it. Let's go and attack that city. The Bible says the scene changes. Revelation 21 verse 2 then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The holy city is descending out of heaven. And as the holy city descends, you and I are in one of two places. We're either inside that city with Christ, coming down, rejoicing in praise as God is going to recreate this earth in Edenic splendor, or... We're outside of that city battling with Satan against Jesus and the angels. The Bible says that Satan and the legions of the lost come up on the city. They attack the city. You see, Jesus is either going to be the Lord of your life today or not Lord at all. You see, there's only one of two choices. We're either inside that city worshiping him or outside of that city battling against him. We're either inside of that city with Christ as our Lord, Christ as our Savior, or outside of that city being guided by another master. See, there are only two masters, only two masters. Somebody says, well, I don't think I'm going to decide. I'm kind of on the fence. That's not possible. That's not possible. You're either going to be fully for Christ or, or fully for Satan. Either Jesus is going to be your Lord and Savior, led and guided by him, or you'll turn your back on that Christ and be guided by the evil one. John says, Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 
He will dwell with them, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, the city of God is with men, and they shall be His people. God Himself shall be with them and be their God. Sin, suffering, heartache, no more. God is going to be with His people forever. He is going to remake this earth. The holy city descends. The wicked rush up on that city, the Bible says, Revelation 20. Mic on. This completes the file about Revelation of Thousand Years of Peace. Mic off.